Father, as we begin. All through the storm, O God, of life, your love is the anchor, and our hope is in you alone. Where would we be if you weren't our anchor? The waves are so daunting at times, and the boat starts to fill up. Thank you so much for ministering to us, and I pray for your help now that you would come and give me the words that these brothers and sisters will benefit most from of all the things that can be said about this great theme of enjoying God. Would you help me, oh God, to choose the ones that would be the greatest powerful help in their lives? Draw near and make yourself seen and known and tasted as infinitely delightful beyond all other competing pleasures, I pray. So revive pastors and lay folks and churches in these days, I ask. That's our heart's cry. We want to be used of you, Lord, to channel your wonderful sufficiency into lives and churches for the glory of your name. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Well, ever since I was a little boy uh, with my dad praying over and over again when we gathered together in the evening as a family, I've struggled with what it means to glorify God. And how you go about it. And that's what my life has been on as a quest ever since then. And I want to reflect on that with you now tonight. I want to make sure I'm, I'm wired appropriately. Am I okay? Am I coming through? All right. Because I just I, I saw lots of buttons here and did not push them all correctly. Good. We all know the verse... Um, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And that's very, very crucial because that's absolutely sweeping. I wrote a little article for our newsletter, our church newsletter called How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. Because my guess is most people don't reflect on that. But that is what Paul said. Isn't that not what he said? I mean, why did he choose the words, whatever you do, and then groping for some practical illustration, he said, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So pizza and Pepsi to the glory of God, if if that's possible, (laughs) which I do hope it is because... Every Tuesday night, I go with our staff to Pizza Hut, and we eat pizza and drink Pepsi to the glory of God. So you must reflect on these things. How do you do that? Now, nobody told me in my growing up years that I can recall what I have come to learn as absolutely essential to put dynamite under these words that... The ground of my pursuit of the glory of God is God's pursuit of the glory of God. That I did not learn 
in my growing up years in Greenville, South Carolina, or in my home, though I think it was implicit in many of the things my father said about God and the way he prayed to God. But it, in 1968 and 69, began to revolutionize my thinking, and through that, my life. And so I'm going to talk about that tonight, but let me step back a little bit and tell you where I'm going and how these next four talks sort of fit together. Um, I, I presume one of the reasons I was asked here to talk about the theme, enjoying God, is because that's been the theme of what I've preached and written now for these last 20 years or so, and uh, the major uh, statement of it is found in the book Desiring God, the subtitle of which is uh, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, I think you pronounce Hedonist, up here. I am a Christian Hedonist, just accept my American pronunciation, I, I am one. At least I'm trying to grow into being one. And so I want to unpack for you the essence of this philosophy of life in these four messages called Christian Hedonism. Had a little girl come up one time, just very distressed that I was talking about Christian heathenism, which is exactly what a lot of people think it is when I use the term, because they can't imagine that there's anything like Christian hedonism. They think it's health, wealth, and prosperity when I start talking about it, which it is absolutely not. In fact, it is designed intentionally to undermine the teaching of health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you don't learn that till the end, then you haven't heard what I'm saying, but only what your ears are hearing. And that's what a lot of people do. They hear what they want to hear and then criticize it the way they want to criticize it. I am a Christian hedonist. And I want to outline for you what that is in these days. I want to talk about the foundations of it tonight in God's joy in God's glory. And then uh, tomorrow morning, my joy in God's glory. And then tomorrow evening, my joy in your joy in God's glory. And then in the last talk, how do you become and maintain a person with that kind of joy. So that's the outline of the four talks. But let me step back and give you the five theses of Christian hedonism. Number one, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience and it is good, not sinful. The longing to be happy is absolutely universal, and it is good, not sinful. It is no more wrong to want to be happy than it is to get hungry. The longing to be happy is to the soul what the growling of the stomach is to the body. It is neither good nor bad in a moral sense. It becomes good or bad by what you Eat when your soul gets hungry. And everybody's soul in this room is hungry. Whether you're a good person or a bad person is not determined by whether you want to be happy. Everybody in this room wants to be happy. 
goodness or badness emerges by where you find it. Number two, that was number one. Number two, we should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad thing. Instead, we should intensify that longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and longest happiness. Don't ever let anybody talk you in to thinking that it is a moral virtue to deny or crucify or mortify your longing to be happy. If they succeed in persuading you of that, they will destroy all your worship and all your virtue. Rather, intensify it, cultivate it, nurture it, feed it, and do not be satisfied until you have found the fountain where the deepest and longest happiness is found. That's number two. Number three. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found in God and God alone. Psalm 16:11. Thou dost show me the way of life. And in thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, don't miss the adjective and the, or let's, let's just say, don't miss the qualifiers. What was it in your presence is what joy? Fullness of joy. So there we're talking about qualitative measure. And at thy right hand are pleasures for how long? That's what I'm after. Don't ever try to sell me 80% proof joy. And don't ever try to get me to be satisfied with joy that only lasts 8,000 years. I will not be content with 99% joy or 9,000 ages of joy and then nothing or sadness. I want 100% proof and I want it to last forever and I will not cease searching until I know where. And I'm answering with this point three, I do know where. The Bible has taught me where. And it is in his presence and at his right hand. And he is it. Number four. The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it expands to be shared with others and draw them into it. In other words, my joy in God does not reach its consummation until it expands to delight in your joy in God. 
My philosophy of life and my quest for joy does not end Buddha-like, cross-legged, under a certain kind of magical tree absorbed in my own nirvana while you go to hell or starve to death. There is something about joy, both in God and in man, that dies if it does not expand. There is an expansive quality to joy. And our joy expands into the joy of others' joy in God, which is why, as we'll find out tomorrow, it is not idolatrous. And it is not a competition with God for me to say or for Paul to write to the Thessalonians, you are my joy and my crown of boasting at the Lord's appearing. Wait a minute. I thought it was God. There's no contradiction there. If you understand that, and here I'll just say that tomorrow's point. If you understand that, the only way to love somebody is to pursue their joy in God. So that your joy in their joy in God will be made complete. Read the first four verses of 1 John. I write to you, my little children, in order that my joy might be complete. And the whole book is designed for their joy. I write to you so that you might not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's after their joy big time. But verse 4 in the right version says, (laughs) that my joy might be complete. That's tomorrow. Number five. This is the fifth and last thesis of Christian hedonism. Therefore, it's a big conclusion drawn from the first four. Therefore, to the extent that you try to abandon the pursuit of your own pleasure, you will dishonor God and fail to love people. Now, that has to be demonstrated in the next three or four. How many times am I talking? Four. Five concluding this morning. So the next three messages, I have to demonstrate this, that if you try and there are many ethicists and there are many pastors who are convincing you to try to abandon your pursuit of pleasure. You will not be able to honor God and you will not be able To love people. Or let's put it positively. And this relates to worship, which is what this conference is all about. Also, the pursuit of pleasure is an essential. Underline the word essential. You take it away, you don't have this anymore. It is an essential component of all authentic worship and all authentic Love. The pursuit of pleasure is an essential component of all authentic worship and all authentic love. 
Well, that's the summary of my philosophy of life called Christian hedonism. Now, tonight, what I want to do is put a foundation under all that, namely, the foundation of God's delight in God. God is passionately in the pursuit of his glory being manifested and enjoyed in the world. Which is why worship is the goal of everything. But I had not seen clearly this tremendously important issue now for me, the foundation of everything, which is the fact that God is the most God-centered person in the universe. The person with the highest passion for God and the greatest delight in God is God. The person who wants to glorify God most in the universe is God. God is not an idolater. He does not put creation above God in the affections of his own heart. He does not put human beings above himself, manifest to himself eternally in the person of his eternally begotten son. He does not put his creatures above his everlastingly begotten son in the delight of his own heart. He has always taken, does now, and ever will enjoy the glory of himself reflected back to him in the image of his Son, far above any delight that he takes in us. He's not an idolater. He's not unrighteous in that he would value something that is less valuable than the most valuable thing in the universe, namely God. And until we get gripped by this truth that God is radically God-centered, we will not understand the Bible as it ought to be understood. Because this is the theme of the Bible. God's pursuit of the glory of God is the theme of the Bible. And everything else is subordinate to it. The energy of the universe of ultimate reality is the energy of worship in the Godhead. I don't know how you conceive of the Trinity, but I will give you just a glimpse of how I conceive of the Trinity here. The Trinity existed before you existed. Everybody agree with that? Good. The Trinity existed before the universe existed. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is absolute reality. It was there forever. Little children ask the hardest questions, don't they? Where did God come from? How did God get to be good? Who helped God learn how to be generous? There isn't any answer to that question. There is no answer to the question, 
where did God come from? Or how did he get to be the way he is? How did he decide to be righteous before he was righteous? There was no before he was righteous. The Trinity is absolute reality. All other reality is derivative. I so struggle with knowing how to respond to people who say, that's real. This is real. That's real. Things I can't see are not real. That's ultimate blasphemy. The, the, the real is God. This is derivative. This is derivative. Everything is derivative and dependent on the reality which always has been. This hasn't always been. This is a Johnny-come-lately pulpit. This is a Johnny-come-lately creation. Flesh, hair, coat, flower. These things came on the scene a mere 10 or 15,000 years ago, maybe. And that's nothing. Nothing. God has always been. I just finished an article this afternoon. I had to run away and disappear from everybody because I had a deadline for an article I was working on for our denominational magazine on the knowledge of Christ, the glory of the knowledge of Christ. And my concluding paragraph said, the way to know the infinite Glorious knowledge of Christ, the Son of God, is that he knows God. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son knows the Father. The Father is infinite. The universe, with its billions of galaxies, is a toy on the floor of heaven. The Father is all. The Son knows the Father, which means His knowledge is absolutely infinite. If you knew everything there was to know about the universe, both its subatomic dimensions and its galactic dimensions, you would know Child's play. ABCs is what you would know compared to what Jesus knows because he knows God. Now, the Trinity, therefore, has always existed and the Father has always known himself standing forth perfectly in the image of himself in the Son. The Son is all that the Father is standing forth for the Father to enjoy. And the Father has enjoyed the fellowship of the Son, and the Son has enjoyed the fellowship of the Father, everlastingly, never having a beginning. And the Holy Spirit is the person who stands forth as the enjoyment and the love between the Father and the Son. Which is why in Romans 5, when it says the love of God is poured out into our heart, it says through the Holy Spirit. If you press it all the way to the limit and survey the whole of Scripture, what you will find is that the Holy Spirit 
is the love of God, namely the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out in your life, what you are enabled to do is by the person of the Holy Spirit embodying the love of the Son for the Father and the love of the Father for the Son, you are enabled This will come true fully someday. You are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to love the Father and the Son with the love of the Father and the Son. And if right now you are frustrated that you can't love God as you ought, take heart. Because in John 17, 24, Jesus promises, he says, my prayer, Father, for them is that they might love you with the very love with which I have loved you. Someday, someday the full, well, probably not the full, but as full as a creature's heart can take it, love of the Trinity will become my love for the Trinity. And then I will be infinitely happy. So what I want to show you tonight from the Scriptures is God's zeal for the glory of God. Now, here's one more reason why this is so important before I turn to the texts. We live in Canada and in the U.S. in a milieu that is absolutely man-centered to the core. In church and out of church. We are a man-saturated culture. And everybody in this room is utterly infected with it. I'm infected with it. You're infected with it. So that we can scarcely see straight when we read the Bible. We can scarcely interpret the cross, for example, the way the cross was meant to be interpreted according to Romans 3, 25 and 26 as a vindication of the glory of God. And the upholding of the righteousness of God. The cross is all about God. And his love for the glory of God. In the salvation of absolutely unworthy sinners. That he might be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Will he be just? Will he be just? Is the crucial issue of the cross. If he didn't have to be just. He wouldn't need a cross. He could just let bygones be bygones, sweep all of our sin under the rug and say, all right, we'll just let, call it even, Stephen, and now you're saved. But he is massively concerned with his justice, so much so that he he killed his son to be just. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It wasn't Roman soldiers that killed Jesus. It wasn't Pilate that killed Jesus. It wasn't Herod that killed Jesus. It wasn't the crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him, who killed Jesus. His father killed him. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why? Because he loves his glory. So much that he put forth his son to be a demonstration of his own righteousness. Had he not put Jesus forward as a demonstration of his righteousness and just passed over sins done beforehand, the whole universe would have cried out, impeach the king of the universe, because it's absolutely unjust 
to say to a David after the rape of Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, not guilty. Which is what he said through Nathan. You are the man. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Put yourself in Bathsheba's father's position at that moment. Just like that. Huh? Just like that. He raped my daughter. He kills my son-in-law. And you just say, I forgive you. Any judge who does that in Hennepin County is impeached. That's why there had to be a cross. God would be impeached as the judge of the universe without the cross of Christ. And he would be removed from office. There was a crisis in heaven when your sins were forgiven. And we are so man-centered, we don't lose any sleep over that crisis at all. We think we should be forgiven. That's the way God is. He forgives sins. He's nice. God is not nice. Blood was shed of the most precious, perfect being in the universe so that God would not be impeached for forgiving your sin. How in the world is, a, is Canada going to understand that with man-centered preaching? It isn't going to happen. That's why the gospel isn't known by many, many people, even people in church. Well, let me take up with you the texts. I want to show you that God is passionately concerned for the glory of God and thus provides a foundation for my being passionately concerned for the glory of God. And you better give me a stopping time here because I'm going to get really carried away and tell me when to stop. <laughs> I will keep going, but I don't want to keep going all night and ruin my reputation here. What? Nine o'clock. All right. That, that, that I can handle. I, I'll try to get done earlier, but don't count on it. Um, let me take you on a survey of redemptive history that shows at the high points of redemptive history, God's passion for his glory. And I'll just give you the survey. This is in at least three of the books that I've written. And let me just make some comments as I go along. God chose you, saints, for his glory. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So if you read the grammar carefully, he chose us, he predestined us unto what end, what purpose, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. You were chosen for the glory of God's grace. That's why you were chosen. It's all about praising 
the grace of God. Then you were created for the glory of God after you were chosen for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why do you exist? You got any teenagers in your house who wonder why they exist? Take them to Isaiah 43, 7. And at least give them something. They can reject it. They can cluck their tongues at it, perhaps. But they may not ever forget it. If you say, Abraham, Karsten, Benjamin, Barnabas, Talitha, I know why you were born. And I know why you were created. You were created to magnify the glory of God. And there is nobody like you and your prism for the refracting of that glory in all the world. If you fail, he will have to get the glory by killing you and giving you torment in hell forever. If you succeed, you will forever and ever and ever refract The light of the glory of God with colors that nobody else can refract. And that will be your life. You exist to magnify the glory of God. And you do understand, don't you? That there are blasphemous ways to magnify and worshipful ways to magnify. Just as there are microscopes that magnify and telescopes that magnify. And if you think of magnifying God like a microscope magnifies, you blaspheme. Because microscopes are designed to make teeny weeny little things look very big, which is blasphemy if you try to relate to God that way. Poor teeny weeny little God. I will make him look bigger than he is like a paramecium. Whereas if you conceive of the magnifying of God the way a telescope magnifies, you will worship and you will cause others to worship because the function of a telescope is to take an absolutely gargantuan thing like Eta Carinae. You've been reading about this misbehaving star up here recently? This star that nobody can figure out, this two-headed star, they can't decide whether it's one or two, and it's so big it's five million times brighter than the sun, and they've seen it with a Hubble telescope now. The point of telescopes is to make Eta Carinae, which looks like a little teeny speck look like what it really is that's the way you magnify God now that's a weighty calling my children my teenagers but that's why you're here you exist to be a telescope for the distant infinite star God Jehovah So that all these blind people in the world who are looking into the night sky and considering a cloud of money or sex 
or success as big. Look at that cloud fills the sky. Whoa, I'll live for that. You know how big a cloud is compared to Eta Carinae? A thimble to the Pacific Ocean would be an understatement. Your job is to get people to fall out of love with the clouds and in love with Eta Carinae, God. You were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43.7 You were called, or Israel was called. Let's just stay in the Old Testament for a minute. Israel was called to be God's people for the glory of God. Jeremiah 13.11 You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. I made the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah, cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Israel was chosen to be for God a glorious garment. Why did God rescue them from Egypt? Why? Psalm 106 verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider thy wonderful works, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Have you ever asked why God chose to deliver the people of Israel with ten plagues instead of one plague? Why is he so inefficient? He could have started with the death angel. Why flies? Why frogs? Why dust? Why darkness? Why? At the risk of disrespect, I will say it's because he's a show-off. Because that's what Exodus 14 says he is. And so does Romans 9.17 to Pharaoh. I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is not content with one demonstration of power or two demonstrations of power or three demonstrations of power. He's going to round it off with ten demonstrations of power and just to give you a little foretaste of where we're heading, Rahab got saved because of that reputation. Therefore, God's pursuit of his glory is not at odds with his pursuit of a prostitute's salvation. Any prostitutes in the room? Any people with horrible sins in your background? Shaking that if God is in the pursuit of his own glory and you have utterly scorned his glory through your misbehavior, that he's going to crush you? Take heart. He didn't crush Rahab. He saved Rahab. 
harlot though she be. And she said, it's because I heard of the reputation and what you did to Pharaoh. And I tremble at not fearing the living God. He saved her by his reputation. He spared Israel again and again in the wilderness for his glory. Listen to Ezekiel 20:14. I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. He conquered Canaan for the sake of his name and brought his people in. Second Samuel 7:23. What other nation on earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and terrible things by driving out the people of the nations and their gods? Here's a beautiful one. Do you remember the time when they asked for a king? We want a king so we can be like the other nations. He had given them judges for a season. And now they come along and say, we want a king. And it was a great sin to want a king to be like the other nations because God was their king. And Samuel made it very clear to them. And there was rain and there was thunder and there was lightning. And the people trembled that they had chosen a human to be their king. And they cried out. For fear. And here's what Samuel said to them in 1 Samuel 12, 20. Fear not, you have done all this evil. Now stop right there. That's very strange sentence. You got, surely that's not a, the right words. It's supposed to say, fear, you have done all this evil. That's logic. But it says, fear not, you have done all this evil. That's gospel. This is Old Testament gospel. Fear not, you have done all this evil. Now, what's that based on? What do you base such gospel preaching on? I'll read the rest of it. Fear not, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not cast away his people for his great namesake. The foundation of the gospel is God's commitment to God. Which is why so many people's gospel doesn't stand on a very solid foundation. It's so fragile. There's so many fragile Christians in the world. A little adversity blows and, oh, God, where are you? Because they've never learned the massive commitment of God to God underneath the gospel and in all the providences of the world. They've never been willing to bow before that kind of God. And therefore, when they come into crisis, they put God in the dock immediately and call him to account. They become the judge. He becomes the judged. Where were you when my mother was killed in 1974? I never said that. I never said. I'm very sympathetic with people who do say that. I may sound, I may sound tough. 
I'm a real pansy when it comes to pastoral care. Just ask my people and don't worry. I really do pastor a church. <laughs> Funerals in the last three weeks. One precious saint always sat right there where you in the green shirt and one always sat right there where you are in the black and white striped shirt. That was Yvonne Fredrickson. That was Muriel Sundberg. And they were both in their 70s and they both just dropped dead. Healthy as could be. And I went straight to both of their spouses' houses and wept with them. Why am I telling you this? I think I'm telling you this because I'm afraid I'm sounding unpastoral here. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you this because underneath that kind of compassion, which is not where it should be, but oh, I find it easy to cry at funerals. I find it easy to cry when that box is there and the family is right there where you guys are. And I try to look at them and say to Bert, healthy, strong, able to love a wife in every way, that God reigns. God reigns. Underneath this kind of pastoral care is a massive God-centered God. Let me jump over to the New Testament. I'll pass over a lot of these texts. There are just dozens and dozens of them that I could read you. Um, let's go to Jesus and let him say a word or two about this. Here's Jesus at, at Gethsemane. Here he comes to the hardest hour of his life. And he says in John 17, uh, or John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. What purpose? What purpose? For this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify thy name. That's the purpose. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Your life, son, has been one great echo of my excellence. And as you go to the cross tomorrow, glory is going to be restored. All the injured glory done by the elect, by their sins, will be repaired and restored. And the whole universe will have to cry out if they have eyes to see. Oh, how infinitely valuable is the glory of God. Because in order to repair it and restore it, look what he was willing to pay. It is an inversion of the gospel. To picture yourself as a diamond in the rough. Worth the death of the son of God. Which is evangelical standard doctrine today. How valuable I must be. Look what he paid for me. That puts grace on its hand. He died for unworthy sinners. 
all who deserve to burn in hell justly forever. In order that his glorious grace might be reflected in your life. And he did it at the price of his son in order to repair the glory that your whole life of sinning has done to injure that glory. Do you ever, in your sharing the gospel, have you ever focused on the second half of Romans 3.23? We all start there, or at least that's the second step. God is a holy God. Second step. All have sinned and what? What does that mean? Why is that an issue? Why is glory stirred into sin? It's because sin is all about glory. Glory is the tramp. Sin is the trampling of glory. Sin is the exchange of glory for something else. Sin is a lack of delighting in glory, a lack of valuing glory, a lack of worshiping glory, a lack of obeying 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's all about glory. Sin is about glory. The cross is about glory. Sanctification is about glory. Glorification is about glory. From beginning to end, the universe is about the glory of God. Well, he's coming back someday. Why is he coming? Why is he coming? Second Thessalonians 1 9. Those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day. Now, here's why he's coming. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. That's why he's coming. He's coming to be glorified. He's coming to be marveled at. Now, those are just a few of the peaks of redemptive history. To show you that God is passionate for the glory of God and underneath his command for you to pursue the glory of God, whether you eat or drink Pepsi and pop and orange juice or whether you sleep or whether you do sex or whether you make meals or whether you lay brick or hammer nails or come computers or whatever, all that to the glory of God underneath that holding up that duty of yours is God's massive delight in the glory of God. Now, here's the question in the last 10 minutes we need to answer. I have spent the last 20 years thinking about this issue and these things, and I have Spoken about this dozens and dozens of times, and the question that comes back most often in regard to the last 20 minutes is, this does not sound very loving of him. To be so consumed with his own glory. In fact, does it not say in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love seeks not its own. And you've just spent the last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, however long I've been going here, trying to persuade us that God in everything he does pursues his own glory. So how can that possibly be loving? We've got a megalomaniac at the center of the universe. He's on an ego trip. That's a very important question.
And the simplistic answer to that question keeps many people from becoming Christians and from being deep, profound Christians. There is an answer to that question. And so I want to spend the last few minutes giving it to you. I got help in it from C.S. Lewis. A lot of help as I was wrestling with this. The crucial insights were coming to me in the fall of 68, 69, early 70, as I was crying over these things and losing sleep over these things. And my whole world was being shattered by Dan Fuller and Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis. And all my categories were being bent out of shape and blown to pieces. And and when that happens, you, you stay awake at night and you tremble and you wonder if you've been a Christian and you cry with your face in your hands and your elbows on either side of the Bible. Those seasons of life are very important. Very important. Don't run from them. Or you'll just be stuck where you are. You'll never grow. And 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the knowledge and the grace of God. Don't stay where you are. Grow. So if you see trembling coming, don't resist it. Embrace it. Well, I picked up a book from C.S. Lewis, a couple of books. One was um, The Weight of Glory, and the other was Reflections on the Psalms. And in Reflections on the Psalms, I read a paragraph or two. I think I have it in my notes here somewhere. Let's see if I can find it. There it is. Um, here's the, here's the, the issue that Lewis helped me with. Lewis, before he was a Christian, was being convicted, was reading his Bible, and was struggling with Almighty God because he knew he had longings in his soul and he didn't know where they could be satisfied. And he thought, maybe God, and so he began to read. And as he read, all the demands for praise in the Bible, it seemed selfish to him. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! This is God's word here. So he said it struck him as like a a vain woman asking for compliments. Praise me, praise me, praise me. And he had a tremendous stumbling block. Why would God go around telling people to praise him? It doesn't sound humble. It doesn't sound loving. It sounds like he's got defective uh, view of self so that he has to have reinforcements all the time coming from his creatures. So let me read what he discovered. He said, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or fear of boring others comes in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. 
My whole more general difficulty about this praise of God, about the praise of God, depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we value. I think we delight, I'm still reading, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, here was the key insight, the praise not merely expresses, but completes the joy. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Hmm. Hmm. Makes the wheels start turning, doesn't it? So, if God is a loving God, what must he give us? Answer, the best. The best for us. What would be best for us? That's what he must give us. If he's loving. If he's infinitely loving, just give us the best. And what's the best? Answer, God is best. So if God loves you infinitely, he must give you himself to enjoy. Now, this sounds very vain. If I were to say to you, what's the best thing I could give you to enjoy? Oh. (laughs) Me. Take me. That would be absolutely vain for one simple reason. What? It isn't true. (laughs) It isn't true. If I love you, I will point you to what's best for you. If God loves you, he will do the same. He's just stuck with being the best. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. You may not imitate him in this. Adam and Eve tried. And that's been our problem ever since. God is the one being in the universe for whom 1 Corinthians 13.5 does not work. Love seeks not its own. If God were to cease seeking to uphold his glory and its infinite worth, he would cease being committed to that which is your infinite joy. And thus he would become unloving. So go back to C.S. Lewis for a minute. I asked the question, what must God do for you if he loves you infinitely? Answer, he must give you what's best for you. What's best for you? God is best for you. What does Lewis teach us in this quote? 
that we do when we receive what is best for us? Answer, we praise it. When you walk out after long spring of rain, I hear you have a lot of rain out here this spring. Too cold, too rainy. So what if you got tomorrow a day where it's 68 degrees, no humidity, and glorious sunshine? Would you not, as you walked out, say something? Yes, you'd say something like that. Or you might say, look at this day. If you were with somebody, look at this. This is quite a day. This is a glorious day. The heavens are telling the glory of God today. You praise it. And if somebody were to say, you can have full enjoyment of this day, but you can't say anything about it, your joy would be incomplete. And therefore, God must not only pursue your delight in him, he must pursue your Praise of him because that's the consummation of your delight in him. God has to be God. I am not God. I don't go around seeking people to praise me. If I did, I would cease to be a preacher of the cross. That's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 1.10. If I were seeking the approval of men, I would no longer be a preacher of the cross. I don't expect this message to win everybody's approval. I expect people to be offended by a God-centered God. But I expect, since I'm talking to saints here, that the Holy Spirit is wildly at work in this room, awakening you to the truth of these things and making you to delight in God's delight, in your delight in him. If God ceased to pursue his own delight in his own glory, he would cease to pursue your delight in his glory. And if he ceased to pursue your delight in glory, he would be cruel and not loving. So here's the summary statement, which I'll try to unpack for the rest of our time together. Summarizes all of my theology. I believe it's a summary of biblical theology, though much more would need to be said. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So that God's pursuit of his glory and your pursuit of satisfaction are not at odds. This is the gospel to me. This is the best news that John Piper, age 21, 22, heard in 1968. Because I knew two things, one from my soul and one from the Bible. From my soul, I knew I want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. From the Bible, I knew God intends to be glorified. And if I thought today that these two things were alternatives, I would quit the ministry and eat, drink, and be merry. For there is no satisfaction eternally, or there is no glorious God eternally. But the good news is, God has so designed the world that 
His glory shines most brightly in your delight in his glory. Therefore, God is as passionate about your happiness in God as he is passionate about his glory. I brought a book along. I have no time. I was going to say I had 30 seconds, but I'm going to take 30 more seconds and read you one quote. This is Jonathan Edwards. You thought it was the Bible. This is Jonathan Edwards. Next after the Bible, my favorite book. Jonathan Edwards was a great theologian and a great preacher. And when he was 20 years old, preached a sermon called Nothing Upon Earth Can Represent the Glories of Heaven. And in it, he said this. If you wonder where my theology is coming from, I will tip my entire hand now. I have not said one original word tonight. This glory of God, therefore, consists in the creatures admiring, rejoicing, and exulting in the manifestation of his beauty and excellency. That's a long sentence to say, his glory consists in your joy in his glory. Next sentence. For God has no glory actively from those that behold his glory and take no pleasure in it. But the essence of glorifying God consists, therefore, in the creatures rejoicing in God's manifestation of his beauty, which is the joy and happiness we speak of. So, here's the question raised for tomorrow morning, if I can entice some of you to come back. If this is so, that God is most glorified in you, When you are most satisfied in him, your highest obligation and duty is to pursue joy with all your might and never swerve from the path of that pursuit. And that's what we'll talk about at 830, I think, tomorrow morning. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, I love you. You are a great God. You are infinitely worthy of all our trembling. Here is the man to whom I will look. He who trembles at my word, says Isaiah. So we tremble at your greatness. We work out our salvation here tonight with fear and trembling, rejoicing that it is you who are at work in us to will and to do your joyful, good pleasure. So, Lord, open our minds. Give us the ability to grasp these things from the scriptures and grant that our hearts would be so engaged that you would indeed be delighted in above all things and glorified above all treasures. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.